Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And here we are with Faust Part 2, Act 3, in which Daniel and I make much of a little... The act may be short, but there's a lot to say with a long digression on Byron. The Cannonball is a member of the Agora Podcast Network, and as part of our embrace of all things creepy in the month of October, the network has pooled its talent to produce a set of spooky episodes under the heading of Agoraphobia. In the show notes, there's a link to the first episode, which features two Celtic-themed horrors with Ben Jacobs from Wittenberg to Westphalia talking on the Highland Clearances, and Sam Hume of Pax Britannica walking us through the Bugane. And if you're a fan of our show, you can check out our discussion of Ambrose Bierce and the Origins of Weird Fiction. Uh, there's another link in the show notes to that. And on episode three, Raven from Tiny Vampires gets buggy with it, and I offer a maybe too personal meditation on monsters in the Spanish Baroque. And there's another link in the show notes for that. There are going to be upcoming episodes from others in the Agora roster, so subscribe and listen and enjoy some not unreasonably researched chills. If you're online, check us out at the thecannonballpodcast.wordpress.com. Find us on Facebook at The Cannonball Podcast and on Twitter at Cannonball Pod. And if you enjoy the show, please rate and review wherever you listen. Welcome to The Cannonball, a podcast attempt to read all of the books in Harold Bloom's list of the Western canon. This is Claude Myron Guzer, and with me as always is my co-host, Daniel Doherty. Daniel, how are you doing, man? Hey, uh, I am on the verge of just physical incapacitation right now. Uh, I made the mistake of attempting to start a new exercise regimen after months of just kind of COVID <laughs> lapse. And, um, it's been two days. It's been two full days. It's been 48 hours since I did a mild, like, workout routine that I also sandbagged on. <laughs> and, uh, I, my muscles are still yelling at me. 
Um, and then also I ate a tremendous amount of takeout tonight. So I, I am basically, <laughs> you know, you, you just don't ask me to do anything physical, but I am absolutely ready for the, uh, for, to, to, to embrace the battlefield of the mind that we, uh, uh the gladiatorial <laughs> arena of thoughts and, uh, <laughs> opinion that we, <laughs> that we have created here. So yeah. <laughs> I was just waiting to see how, how you were going to stretch that one out. Like, how are you going to get that to land? <laughs> the, um, the, the trick is to no, not bother I, sticking the landing, I find. <laughs> <laughs> um, in any case, the, I guess we're sort of vamping a little bit. And I, I suppose this episode might be a lot of vamping. We'll see how it goes. Um, the fact of the matter is that Act 3 of Part 2 of Faust, which is what we're here to talk about, is kind of the centerpiece of the whole play, or it was originally intended as the centerpiece of Faust Part Two, but it's it's really pretty brief. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as things go, it's just sort of you're in, you're out. It's three scenes, each one more or less self-contained, and you know, l- last time we were at this, we were doing Act Two, which is just, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> it is a splendid monument of clusterfuckery. Yes, yes. <laughs> this was refreshingly. So, this was refreshingly straightforward for all of the the slipperiness and uh, and well, goodness that you have that you find in it. After the after the classical well, Valpurgis knocked, I mean, God, a, a scene where human beings talk well, to each other was uh, it's just incredible. <laughs> There's there's a novelty to three people just having a conversation, but that I mean that was the thing. Um, you know, we, we, part of what we sometimes get away from is our affective response to this, and you know, as as wild and just bananas as the the classical Volpergus Knox was, that was sort of what was appealing about it. Yeah, just the variations, permutations, the weird pageantry, the the really the spectacle of it. Yeah, you know, and um, there's something. It's it's sort of like it's a little deflating to go from that to something as straightforward as as Act Three. Now, this is kind of the thesis of the play. This is the act that's the thesis of the play. Mm-hmm. But um, it's it's kind of shockingly, disarmingly straightforward. And there's – as I sort of said, it, it was a little bit of a letdown. Yeah. Or at yeah. least it was for me. I don't know about you. No, I, I feel the same um, way. It had the same kind of um, – like it, it sort of felt like a the – well, uh, hmm. I understand that with the classical Valpurgis knock, you kind of like, you reach a point where you, you can't take it much further. So I knew that we, yeah, <laughs> that Goethe was going to have to dial it back a bit. Um, but it was a little deflated, you know, it was a, it was kind of like a, uh, well, I don't know. I guess we'll, we'll discover that more, uh, dear listener, as yeah. we, uh, as, as we talk about it, as, uh, as Claude lays out, uh, what's going on here. But, um, the kind of the, 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 retreat to much more familiar ground even with the classical references was uh kind right. of like a little t- you know a step away from the from the heady days of like <laughs> re- referencing things that i had never even heard of in my you know 20 30 years of being interested in in, in hellenic society you know well you know we still get our our tragic cosmic ejaculatory ending but yes we do i that was my (laughs) 
That was that yeah, was something I noted very much the some parallels that crop up. Yeah, but it's made a little bit more tragic because it involves Byron dying. Um, ah, <laughs> I see. That that's its own weird thing, which I guess we'll get into. I I, I suppose as if we're if we're messing about in Faust Part Two, you can't get away from Goethe's, I guess, flagrant messy sexuality. Like the 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 stickiness is sort of all over it, um, on purpose. Like again, as we were talking about last time, he he has a a sort of larger point with you know the the sort of messy sex that goes on mm-hmm. or the sort of weird ejaculatory stuff that goes on it's not just thrown in there to sort of insult good taste or anything like that and i i really don't think faust part two was insulting good taste all that much mm-hmm. um maybe the way i'm presenting it is insulting to good taste but I, I i didn't find it insulting to good taste but it's not that he's throwing it in as a sort of howard stern gesture it's that he's he's weaving it in as part of the faustian drive i mean yeah uh, the faustian drive is connected to sexuality and it has been since the beginning like since fast part one but here it's sort of like he seems to be examining the culmination and the culmination is problematic. It, it, it it's always deflating in some way, shape, or form, or or it has a kind of gesture towards finality or ending, which is a letdown. Yeah, if that makes sense. But um, absolutely. But but Byron dies. But before we can get to that, <laughs> <laughs> we uh, uh, we. You have to sort of understand uh, what Act Three is 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 all about. And Act Three was originally intended uh, as the centerpiece to the the play to to Faust Part Two. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe I talked about this with um, my friend Rachel in in the episode we aired, uh, sort of like the background information, and then. Um, we talked about it uh, with uh, when we were talking about the the construction of Faust Part Two. Um, he he wrote it in bits and pieces over the course of a couple of decades, mm-hmm. and Act Three was supposed to be the centerpiece because well, all right, I'll tell you the original title. Uh, this was a fragment called Helen in the Middle Ages. A satiric uh, drama. Aha. Uh-huh. And uh, satiric, as in S A T Y R, satyr. Yeah. yeah. Um, the satyr plays were, in case you're unfamiliar, the, not necessarily you, but anyone in the audience, the, the satyr plays were sort of the fourth part of uh, a classical Greek trilogy. So what they would do with the tragedies. Is during the dramatic, uh, yeah, during the dramatic competition, you would have a trilogy concerning one particular, uh, I guess, set of characters or 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 one particular house, uh, one particular what have you, uh, one particular myth, and it would end in a kind of semi triumph of some sort. But after all the horror and nastiness and and 
high drama and bad feelings that <laughs> accompany high drama, uh, you'd have a Seder play. It was sort of like a body little, let's, you know, cheer ourselves up a little bit with something that's reflective in some way, shape, or form of the trilogy trilogy that you just witnessed but mm-hmm. sort of burlesques it yeah and if you've if you've never read greek comedy um it, it was it was pretty gnarly um <laughs> you know the, it's uh it, it was, was, they played it blue and they played it broad yes they did yes they did so um you know at the end of all this stuff you get like naked three stooges uh grabbing each other's crotch and stuff like that <laughs> Um, okay, that's uh, that's not actually what happened, but I'm just trying to give you a, a, the, a sort of feel for Yeah, for that's the vibe, you know. So anyway, to call it a satiric drama um, mm-hmm. is kind of this weird it, – it's a mixture of genres, or it strikes me as a mixture of genres, and that's – what's going on in in fast part two anyway it's drama but it's epic drama and it's this weird kind of hybrid of everything and um as i believe we talked about before it's sort of a pastiche Mm -hmm. Uh, that's what my friend rachel kept sort of articulating to me is that this is a pastiche of all these other things and he just sort of picks and chooses and throws things together just to see how they intermix but the the idea is that this is Helen in the Middle Ages. Um, what he he's sort of trying to do here, what the original intent was, was to take classicism and wet it like ancient Greek or, or I guess classical Greek mm-hmm. classicism and wet it to um, wet it to a kind of high European mindset to mm-hmm. come out with the best of both worlds, to create this kind of hybrid project to apply the classical to this other place in time to try to produce a kind of renewed modern classicism. So it's it's got this kind of nationalist project sort of built into it. Mm-hmm. But the the thing that sort of hits me more is how this is a project to merge antiquity and modernity, to take the best of one age, meld it with another age, and sort of see what happens, produce this kind of hybrid form. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I, I might just be reading this too much through the lens of Hart Crane, Crane did a poem on this very theme, the marriage of Faustus and Helen, where, um, you know, in opposition to something like T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound's gloomy paleo-modernism, um, Crane had a much more hopeful, like a, a more hopeful view, I suppose, which is ironic because he was producing much of what he was producing in the middle of the Great Depression. But um, he he had this sort of more hopeful view of what the the modern could produce. It, it could be something that um, with certain kinds of refinement could be, you know, so on and so forth. But Hart Crane didn't really sort of live to see that project through. And there's a real question in my mind about where Goethe thinks this goes, because this this act is also 
representative in some ways of his attempts to bring classicism to Germany, yeah. uh, Weimar classicism. And there seems to be an ambivalence about whether or not that can be achieved or how effective that was. I mean, we, we've come across this before, like in Act One, where you had the pageantry and you had the spectacle and there was this sort of attempt to bring art to the masses. And when Faust started producing The Shades of Helen, nobody thought it was that special. <laughs> um, so here's where he's doing it. And does it work? That's kind of the question. Yeah. So the second title for it was, (laughs) um, later on, he revised this episode and he called it uh, a classical romantic phantasmagoria. Okay. Which, uh, that seems more. I was going to say, that's closer to what I read. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, But it's still. It still contains pieces – excuse me, I'm drinking my water. It still contains pieces of those hybrids, right? It's yeah. classical romantic, romantic and it's a phantasmagoria. Um, the, this act sort of famously starts out in the, the Greek tragic form, like using the verse form of Greek tragedy, like the, the actual meter – and then slowly it shifts into the kind of plurality of European metrics that that Goethe has been playing with all along. So it yeah. slides from one f- sort of verse form into another. And that seems to be how he's thinking about modern innovation meeting, I guess, classical refinement. Hmm. And yeah. so that seems to me an interesting move. Um, unfortunately, we're reading this in translation, and I really feel like I'm missing a lot, um, be that as it may. So the act spans about a thousand years. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, the, there's Helen goes from Menelaus's palace to um, – this, uh, I guess, German outpost uh, within the course of a couple of lines. Yeah, which is explained but- to her. So there's a, a kind of monstrous uh, uh, steward of Menelaus's palace uh, who um, is – I thought this was, was kind of interesting. I, I was – the first thing that I that really – like caught my notice here is that uh so helen comes back home with the coterie of um trojan women who serve as her maids that that are now refugees from their leveled uh home proud towers of ilium have been cast down and helen's back in sparta and um so she's confronted with this uh with this uh warden supposedly who's been taking care of the palace you know uh since she's been gone and is like they're supposed to lay out all of the accoutrement for a sacrifice, you know, which would not have yeah. been, you know, unusual for kind of like, oh, we're going to give thanks to the gods that we made it back home. So we're going to get like the, uh, oh, well, we need all this, this, the, you know, the incense burners and the, and the, the holy vessels for the water to cleanse our, you know, blood clotted hands and all that stuff. And, but Helen right. notices that, oh, uh, nowhere in these instructions does it call for us to bring an animal in. Huh. Wonder what that's about. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, that's the thing is that the first th- – this this act is in three scenes 
And um, the first scene really does play on I, I mean it's it's a pretty effective um reimagining of a greek tragedy mm-hmm. it, it's playing on the the sort of tragedies of homecoming and if anything it reminded me a whole lot of agamemnon Did, yeah you familiar well that was agamemnon? yeah and that was my first thought was like uh, my immediate thought was like oh wait a minute Am I remembering all my Homeric stuff wrong? I don't think Helen got sacrificed when she got back home. Is that is there a version of it that does it? So I actually I went and I consulted my uh, this this I, I consulted my copy of uh, uh, the Greek myths by the, as as told by Robert Graves. Which um, uh-huh. by the way, just as a caveat here, Robert Graves did a wonderful job of retelling various myths and their various versions. His interpretation uh-huh. of what those myths mean. Pretty much gobbledygook. Don't go with that. But as actual retellings, <laughs> I think they're great, and that's why I hold on to my copy. Um, yeah, but yeah, I was yeah, looking yeah. for some kind of mention, like Helen getting mass, you know, getting getting sacrificed, and I was like, okay, this this isn't me. I did not flub this, as I do so many things. Goethe has invented something here. Interesting. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. But it does. I mean, it really does play like Ag- Agamemnon. And if right. any of the listeners haven't haven't read Agamemnon, or it's been a long, long time. Um, Agamemnon was the brother of Menelaus, who was the one who kind of rallied the troops to get them all out to Troy. He got everybody together, but um, they couldn't get the breeze up. They couldn't get a wind to get out of port. So he had to sacrifice his daughter Iphigenia to the gods to get a good wind. Mm -hmm. And that didn't really put him in a good footing with his or on a good footing with his wife so Clytemnestra sort of held that against him you know like you do so he goes out to Troy they conquer Troy he comes back with Cassandra who's this Trojan woman who has been blessed with the gift of second sight but also cursed because no one will believe her (laughs) right um yeah so she comes back or, or she comes back with him um, Agamemnon comes home. They roll out the purple carpet. He's not supposed to step on the purple carpet, but does anyway. Um, and then he goes home to a bath and that's where Cassandra sort of articulates all the violence that's gonna happen. Um, Cassandra sees, um, Agamemnon being slaughtered in his bath by Clytemnestra and her lover, whom she has taken during the meanwhile. And uh, Cassandra even sees that she will be murdered <laughs> in the same way uh, with an axe, and there's nothing she can do about it. Um, it all comes to pass, and Clytemnestra comes back on stage after having slaughtered everybody, her hands bloody, and she says, hey, I'm the, the, the ruler in town, my boyfriend's going to be king, everybody shut up and do what you're told. <laughs> The end until her son, Orestes, in the next play, comes back to kill his mother. Like you do. Right. Uh, so <laughs> anyway, that's it. Agamemnon is actually a really, uh, if anybody's looking for something good and creepy and bone chilling to read um, in the month of October, which is when we're recording this, and I'm assuming it's going to come out. Um, go read Agamemnon because it really is just it. It'll it'll unnerve you. And Cassandra's um, 
uh, monologue is really just chilling. Yeah. Um, the whole, the whole play just has this air of dread about it. And it's just, it, it gets under my skin. It's, it's so, ugh. but, um, Anyway, uh, Agamemnon was part of the House of Atreides, and there's no good ending if you're from the House of Atreides, <laughs> uh, which yes. has its roots in um, child cannibalism and eating your own young, literally. So, you know. All right. So anyway, the reason I'm bringing all of that up is not just because this act is very short and we're trying to fill time. It's because <laughs> the the play seems self-consciously to draw from that. Yeah. And what uh, Goethe seems to be doing here is playing on um, the stories of the homecomings. You know, Ag- Agamemnon's story, even in in the the Odyssey, Agamemnon's story is sort of like what you don't want to have happen when you come home. Yes, like in, in the Odyssey, um, <clears throat> if you don't remember, um, Telemachus. It begins with Telemachus on a search for his father, and Telemachus goes to talk to Menelaus, and Helen is there, and um, they have this weird exchange. But um, lurking in the background is what happened to Agamemnon, and they want to make sure that what happened to Agamemnon is not going to happen to Odysseus. So it's sort of like the warding of what awaits you when you come home. And what appears to be awaiting Helen when she gets back from Troy here is annihilation. I mean, even with that sort of winking, ironic nod, hey, wait, there are no cows here. Like, there's nothing to slaughter. Yeah. What's going to happen? Right. Um, so in any way, uh, they, they begin in this kind of tragic mode, right? Yeah. And uh, then Helen goes upstairs to make sure everything's in order. And who does she run into? It's the uh, the foe. Let's see. What is it? The the Phocirus. The Forkyad. Yeah, the the Fork. Yes, that's it. Um, Yeah. And who is that? (laughs) Well, there's there's a big reveal at the end of the act, Claude. I don't know if we want to spoil it for everybody. (laughs) Uh, no, this it was revealed in the classical Volpergus Noct. It's yeah, uh, Mephistopheles. It's, Me- it's Mephistopheles, and uh, so he is Mephistopheles is the kind of monstrous uh, housekeeper uh, who's who's been uh, supposedly taking care of Menelaus's palace here, um, and it's it's this um, over the course of sort of Helen being a little shocked at like, oh, I've the the instruction is for me to be sacrificed and there, oh, we're all getting ready for that sacrifice, you know. And there's there's a lot of like yeah. uh, kind of sassy back and forth between uh, Mephistopheles and uh, the chambermaids there. But this is kind of the uh in the midst of all that, this is all part of Mephistopheles' plan to get Helen to agree to go meet Faust, as he begins describing like, oh, well, while you were gone, uh these strangers from out of nowhere came and set up shop in this river valley, you know, uh, uh, up, you know, upland from Sparta here in the, in these mountains along this, this stream. Um, you know, no one has ever seen the like of them, but they're led by this great and wonderful prince. Uh, and he's definitely won't sacrifice you. I can take you there now. <laughs> <laughs> and well, that's the thing. Like, all right. First of all, before we get too far into mm-hmm. it, I do want to point out that when Helen comes back, she has she has this line, and I'm I'm using David Luke's translation 
um, just for ease. It, it's a good translation. The um, yeah, it was it was the best one to use for me uh, for right now because it also has you know really good notes and the notes that I was or, or the background information. A lot of that that I was telling at the beginning sort of comes from his introduction. It's a good introduction if you're looking to understand the text. Um, it, it, like the the background and the context, I, I would go with this one. But anyway, she she has this line. <clears throat> she says, I am a prize of war, perhaps a prisoner, for by heaven's will, my reputation is two-edged, as is my fate. And both the ambiguous followers of beauty even now beset me with their dark and menacing presence on this threshold of my home. Um, there, there's something she keeps articulating about how dangerous beauty is. Mm-hmm. And this gets at something that Goethe apparently was working at in in this act. Um, is Faust finally mature enough to handle it? Yeah, you know, yeah. is he mature enough to handle beauty? And that sort of seems to be the argument that at this point he is. Um, but what is the outcome? Uh, the outcome seems to be tragic. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if he is ready. It seems as if not everyone else is ready, and bad things seem to come of beauty. Um, either that or of necessity, one age will transform the aesthetics of another age and take it out of that so that it cannot last. There's something in this act which is having to do with the the failures of classicism yeah yeah but i it, it's not quite clear to me yet what exactly the play is saying about that but we can discuss that later i just wanted to to sort of bring that up because it it, it happens sort of right off the bat that helen is speaking of beauty and i think we can use this as a kind of um metaphor as well for aesthetic beauty mm mm-hmm. Right, but she's speaking of her beauty as both enticing and dangerous, and we we sort of need to see how that plays out. Yeah, but yeah, so um, <laughs> Mephistopheles. Well, okay, so he's the forkid, right? Yeah, and once again, he oh, and and you're bringing up the the um the back and forth with the girls. That's another part of the structure as well. I just want to point that mm-hmm. out that the, the maidens who come back with Helen are the chorus. Yeah. And they even have a chorus leader. And so the chorus is sort of playing this part here, you know, doing what a chorus does, sort of telling us how to interpret the action and what to think about it. Yeah. So it, it's really kind of fun. Mephistopheles is having this kind of back and forth with the chorus. And it also seemed to be reminiscent of, him sort of messing around with the Thessalian witches in the classical of Walpurgisnacht. There's this way in which he was trying to do something similar, except here it's more antagonistic, I think, on his part. But be that as it may, um, it was striking to me how when he appears sort of from the beginning – he brings a kind of moralistic language into it. 
And again, this is the Luke translation. He says, the proverb's old, but still its meaning's high and true, that modesty and beauty never hand in hand pursue their way together along the earth's green path. Mm -hmm. Between the two, ancient deep-rooted hatred dwells so that wherever they may somehow chance to meet, each of them turns her back upon her enemy. Each will press on, then further, with more vehement pace, modesty, sadly, beauty flown with insolence, till in the end hell's hollow night receives them both if they are not first subjugated by old age. Thus now, you foreign hussies, shameless, arrogant as you are, I find you swarming hither like a horse in noisy flight of cranes, which in a straggling cloud above our heads sends down its harsh cacophony on us, so that the peaceful wayfarers move to glance aloft, but off they fly upon their way while he goes his. And so it shall be between us. <laughs> um, well, it's this is Mephistopheles with all of his, you know, sort of um, trenchant irony. But it's also Mephistopheles as moralist. Mm-hmm. That that was one of the things we sort of talked about in the classical Walpurgisnacht. Part of what it seems that antiquity, or, or part of what it seems that Goethe was attracted to with antiquity was this lack of moralizing you know um it's not that um classical tragedy doesn't have a point of view and is not working as a kind of rhetorical agent trying to persuade you of some particular idea of justice or of this or of that or what have you but um it it seems to be just the the sort of willy-nilly free-for-all mm-hmm. of admission of all kinds of human behavior that drew Goethe to the 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 writings of antiquity. Yeah. Um here's here's the northern devil, right? Yeah. Because Mephistopheles is unacquainted with uh the classics, but here's the northern devil and he can't help but moralize. I mean, this is really kind of simple stuff. Modesty and beauty um, never have anything to do with each other. And that's just sort of typical, you know, satirical moralizing that goes back to the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. For even further, right? Yeah, yeah. But it, it's sort of his his tone here and his take here, which is kind of – I don't know if it's intended to be jarring – but it it does seem like weirdly out of place if we're we're thinking of this as a thematic link. Yeah. Um. So, uh, Helen, of course, you know, if the choice is between being uh, a literal lamb at the slaughter or not, agrees to meet this uh, this new mysterious <laughs> lord. And again, like you said, in the space of a couple of lines, it's like you know the 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 smoke machine gets turned on on the stage that this is being performed on ostensibly <laughs> and and yeah. uh and uh and we arrive um I, I just as an aside i think it's amazing that there are still stage directions at this point in the play um because <laughs> like there's no way on earth there's no way on god's green earth anyone actually staged the classical valpurgis knock to attack three anyway <sighs> so helen and her and her coterie of maids appear in this hall uh and it's a it's like a medieval hall. It's like the, it's hung with, mm-hmm. uh, with coats of arms. Uh, and this, you know, this noble princely, uh, fellow descends the stairs and it's Faust, uh, who was apparently made yeah. up as a, a sort of grandee, a, a kind of idealized, uh, feudal duke, uh, who, 
you know, these people have just appeared in his castle. Well, you know, he then seizes the watchman who was supposed to warn him of people approaching the castle to, uh, to castigate him in front of these, uh, these, you know, these people, including the, the captivated, the captivating Helen, who he then, you know, he turns this watchman over to Helen's judgment. They're like, all right, what should I do with this guy? You know, and, and Helen, of course, uh, shows mercy. Um, you know, I, as, as far as she knows, like, well, we just appeared here in a puff of smoke. <laughs> it's not this guy's fault. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, uh, Faust goes on at great length about the Helen's noble beauty and, and pledges, pledges his life to her. And it's kind of like, I guess this was almost like the, uh, what, like a kind of, uh, variant of courtly romance, I guess. The, um, Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, the the kind of like pledging your fealty to a lady at first sight uh kind of uh, courtly yeah. love angle like the troubadours would sing about. Uh Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah, and even into the the sort of um the the chivalric romances that Don Quixote was so fond of. Yes, yes. You know, so he's moving from genre to genre. Yes. And incorporating several genres and several verse forms associated with those genres. And, uh, it is all throughout it. Yeah. It is, it is, uh, in the midst of this, that there are, there are like explosions and, and alarms going up that Menelaus is approaching, uh, into the Middle Ages somehow. Um, and I got the, the impression I got was that what, what had happened is that Mephistopheles had just plonked down like a, a, a Rhinish castle in the middle of like, you know, uh, Lacedomia there next to Sparta. Um, yeah. Or, or, or was Helen removed to an idealized, you know, Palatinate? <laughs> I have no, I have yeah. no idea. But the fact that Menelaus was able to get there and also has like gunpowder weapons. I mean, it's, it's some seriously you know crazy stuff. Did you ever see the the Simpsons episode? Well, of course you did, but there was that Simpsons episode where Rodney Dangerfield was the guest host and he was Mr. Burns' heir. Yeah, yeah. He was Mr. Burns' son. And um, <clears throat> at the end, they fake a kidnapping and it all goes weird, but everything turns out okay. And suddenly there's just a giant party happening. Yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> Marge says, wait a minute, where'd you get that drink? He says, who cares, Marge? It's, Marge, it's a party. Uh, that, that's, that's exactly I think that's it. sort of how you approach um, Fosfart too. You know, who cares? It's a party. Yeah. Just go with and, it. And speaking to, the, um, speaking to the nationalist angle that you brought up earlier, uh, when yeah. as, as Menelaus's men are approaching <clears> – <throat> Uh, Faust rallies his bannermen and calls them out as like, you Saxons shall deploy here. You Franks here. Mm-hmm. You Goths here. These are all, of course, the classical quote unquote, quote, quote, quote. This is a very problematic, uh, uh, uh category to put people in Germanic barbarians. Um, right. so I thought that was interesting because, of course, this is in the, you know, Goethe's lifespan spans the, the dissolution of the Holy Roman Empire, which was, you know, by his day, a, a total fiction of any kind of unit, like unitary <laughs> Germanic state. But he also, yeah. this is all well before the actual eventual unification of Germany under Kaiser Wilhelm I of Prussia and Otto von Bismarck right. later in the century. So I thought it was very interesting that right. there's this still this kind of like, he's still harping this, um, this kind of proto pan Germanic national character of the few right. of the of this middle ages society 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. No, it, it it totally is. It totally is. I mean, that's that's what he's going for here. And this is the tough part because that seems to be one of those moments of unity of everything coming together, mm-hmm. but it can't last. I mean, nothing in this act does. Well, I mean, nothing in this play does, but because <laughs> everything is transformed again and again and again, and this act ends in transformation. Yes. But I want I want to go back for a second. To think about Mephistopheles, I can't get him out of my mind. Uh, <laughs> no, but Mephistopheles again is acting the part of the pimp. Yes, like he, you know, all the way back. If, the if the procurer, any kind yeah. Of, yeah, if you're if you're looking for any kind of thematic unity, or I guess okay, not the pimp. He's the pander. Yes, Sorry, yes. two different things. Um, but if you're looking for any kind of thematic unity, that seems to be you know, a link back to Faust part one. And I, you, you cannot read these things as, you know, tightly structured interconnectedness. I mean, you can't read Faust part one as tightly structured, but um, this does seem to be a sort of thematic echo of Mephistopheles as Pander, as the go between Mm -hmm. as the one who will get Faust the girl. And something interesting goes on between Mephistopheles and Helen. Um, 
he he uses language to not only is he being moralistic he's using language to affect her mind um she says in sorrow not in anger i must intervene <clears throat> i must forbid this altercation's violence uh mephistopheles as forcius has been sort of bickering back and forth with the chorus and Helen's putting a stop to it. She says, nothing does greater injury to a prince than if his loyal servants itch with hidden mutual strife for his commands then can no longer echo back harmoniously translated swiftly into deeds. Instead, disordered noise roars round him waywardly while in confusion, he upbraids the empty air. Nor is this all in your unseemly anger. You called dreadful shapes to mind and dismal images, which throng about me, uh, around me so that I myself feel drawn down hellwards even on this my green and native earth is it a memory has delusion seized my mind was i all that and am i and shall i still be that nightmare image helena the city's bane the girls all tremble you alone the eldest stand calm and composed now show me wisdom in your words um the the bickering the back and forth calls to mind the destruction of troy and her own sort of culpability in that but we also have that moment of antiquity that is not streamlined beauty, but real horror. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it, it seems to be the other side of this that's always waiting, right? Um, and Mephistopheles keeps reminding her and guilting her. And again, <clears throat> that doesn't, you know if there is no sin in, in, in antiquity, right. Then there can't be guilt. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But Mephistopheles is working on her. They have this back and forth and he says, she says, when do you call to mind that semi widowhood and, or why do you call to mind that semi widowhood and the appalling ruin that it's felt for me? Forkis says, I suffered by that voyage too, freeborn in Crete. It brought me long imprisonment and slavery. Okay. The things that you did had this repercussion on me. Yeah. Helen says, you were brought back at once to keep his household here. His castle and its hard-won wealth became your trust. Mephistopheles says, you left them both to seek the towered walls of Troy and, and to enjoy love's pleasures inexhaustibly. She says, do not speak of the pleasures. An infinitude of bitter sorrow overwhelmed my heart and mind. But <laughs> he keeps going on. Right. Um, it's, I mean, he's, he's, he's guilting her. Yeah. And and really sort of working on her to to feel that kind of dread that there's there's guilt there's dread that you know what's going to happen to her is justified in some way and that there's no other out than to go find Faust. Yeah. So this this yeah. is the uh, the 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 union of uh, of of uh, post feudal Europe. And uh, the classical world we've been hearing so much about. It's it's, it's not bringing the best of the well, classical world. It. It's applying uh, Protestantism onto the classical world. <laughs> well, that's what I thought was really kind of interesting. Like, that's that's why I see a lot of ambivalence here. All right. On, on the one hand, you know, there's this idea of taking the best of the past with the best of the present and putting it together. But what about the worst of the present? Yeah. And the worst of the past. Right. Um, you know, that – also seems to be at play. Well, I'll tell, I'll tell you like, what. See, now you mentioned that, and I know exactly what that gets you. That gets you mm. the American South during chattel slavery. 
Yeah. Because that's exactly, they were very, very conscientious about the fact that they were attempting to, or they, they believed themselves to be emulating the great slaveholding societies of Rome and Greece. And of course, they were also through and through Protestants. Uh, and yeah. wow. All right. <laughs> I'm discovering this as I say it. <laughs> we, we discovered uh, in real life what that would mean. Woo. All right. Jesus. Anyway. You know, I, I I worked for years to escape the South, and it always just catches up with me. Well, buddy, I'm 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 still here, deep in the bosom of the South, so uh, yeah. I'll, I'll never let you forget uh, about it. Uh, <laughs> and and no offense to all of our of all, all of our Southern listeners, I, I think uh, you you all know what we're talking about. Yeah, hating where you're from is a genuine Southern attitude. <laughs> hating where hating where you're from, and also being you know, sticking up for it however also, you can. <laughs> yeah, having to love it at the same time. Yeah. Um, uh, anyway, I, I, you know, I, I will not give up saying the word y'all until I'm dead in the ground Mm-mm. because it is a it is it is just word. so grammatically useful. I just it's mm, love it anyway. Uh, but right, uh, anyway, so, so back to it. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. You're right, and and that's that's kind of the strangeness of this. The first merging, you know, that's actually in my notes. The first merging of antiquity and sort of modern um, Europeanness is when Mephistopheles introduces guilt to Helen. Yeah, so that puts us in such a weird position. That's kind of what he can offer and that's what he can do that kind of prodding nagging you know angst um so that's what gets her there but once she's there she finds something different so they do have this i you know the the running like one of the running themes that i think we've been talking about is is spectacle like so much of this play has to do with spectacle and the production of spectacle, mm-hmm. the producing of phantoms or phantasms. And um, the when Faust appears with the watchman who didn't tell him that Helen was here, they have this weird performance where Faust makes a spectacle of his own devotion to beauty. Like um, he he threatens to kill the the watchman who didn't alert him as this kind of oh glorious lady this man must be killed because he did not tell me of your coming yes and it, it's really sort of over the top and overwrought and kind of ridiculous but it's that performance of the appreciation of beauty you know yeah um that that seemed to be for her benefit and no one else's and I, I can't quite tell if the guard is going along with it or if this really is sincere in some way shape or form if we can even think about anything in this play being sincere you know yeah um but she does she does have this moment where she recognizes how pitiable he is or, or how pitiable this night watchman is. And she again notes the way that her beauty can drive people nuts. Right. Um, is Faust's lenience towards the watchman also a performance of his so-called maturity that he will not be driven out of his mind to destructive things because of Helen's beauty, 
that that's I, I'm wondering if that's another way to interpret that. Yeah. But it doesn't really matter. <laughs> because, um, Helen is, is enchanted because people here speak in rhyme. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's one of the things that I, you know, I, I wish my German was decent enough to read the original. Um, you know, I can ask where the toilet is and I could order a beer, but I can't really, <laughs> um, read Goethe. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the the novelty of going to the palace is that people start speaking in a different verse form mm-hmm. and part of what enchants helen is the rhyme um classical poetry uh ancient poetry in in greek does it rhyme yeah that's <laughs> um, yeah that's not an element of the of the kind of uh that's not an element of the rhythm. That's not an element of the mnemonic properties of it. Mm-hmm. It's purely, yeah, mm-hmm. it's purely rhythm and, uh, and kind of, uh, uh, stock phrases or stock descriptors, I guess in, in the, in the Homeric, uh, tradition anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, she begins picking up on the rhyme and starts rhyming with him. And so they have this kind of duet as they take their thrones together. So I, I I think the intention is to sort of be like Romeo and Juliet, who are completing each other's lines and things like that. They're competing, completing each other's rhymes and and sort of playing in in that manner. Um, then we have the defense against Menelaus, who's got guns for some reason. Yes, <laughs> yes, which I which I really loved. This was as as a um, uh, I don't know. There's just something about this struck me as kind of almost like uh, Michael Moorcockian. Like the the the, yeah. the the idea of 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 Homer's characters having like blunderbusses and and brass cannons. <laughs> uh, you know, if the angels in heaven during the the um, the fall of Satan had them. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Well, one uh, I don't know if I've um, I, I think I posted about it on the internet before, but I don't know if we've talked about it. But there's this fascinating phenomenon. I'm sorry to get tangential, but we're talking about you know firearms no, angels. The uh, the New World schools of courtly painting in the Spanish Empire. Um, I think mm-hmm. we may have talked about them on the show when uh, we talked about Don Quixote. But there was this whole tradition of painting the angels as uh, kind of royal guard musketmen, and so they're mm-hmm. in these magnificent like Renaissance, you know, ruffled collar, like slashed sleeves, lance connect looking outfits, holding arquebuses with with angel wings. <laughs> And they're just the, just remarkable artworks. They were produced in the the viceroyal uh, courts of uh, Peru and, and Gran Colombia, and uh, just a remarkable artwork. Um, they're they actually studios of. There were some indigenous painters. Uh, it wasn't just like you know white Spaniards who had uh, emigrated. It was it was it it became a kind of indigenous tradition. And so for a while, like and it may even still be going on, but for a while, like some you know indigenous. Um, Religious artwork would include what were called arquebusier angels, huh? Because there, there's actually that reminds me of a poem by the contemporary American poet Jory Graham. She wrote, um, I think the title is "Angel with a Machine Gun." <laughs> yes, um, but um, maybe it's not. Maybe it's "Angel of History." And, and anyway, it's playing on. Um, the idea of the angel of history and sort of this articulation of it that I believe Walter Benjamin had, but she describes 
an angel with a machine gun. Yeah. And it's this weird, jarring image, but I hadn't really considered it. Maybe it has these resonances with the the kind of paintings that you're talking about. Yeah. But um, but but all that to say, sorry to get us back on track. Yeah. Menelaus shows up. <laughs> it's just strapped <laughs> so, to the so hill. Menelaus shows up, and he's he's not really much of a threat. Um, but it's it's at this moment that Faust really okay. This is something that I was trying to interpret, and and this is. Again, this is the problem. Um, if if we're if we're reading the translation, <clears throat> we can't really pause to interpret word by word and the resonance of several words, or the resonance or the meanings of certain kinds of words and the particular usage will elude us. So what we're left with is sort of talking about broad structures. And I, I'm kind of okay with that, but it leads to some questions. Uh, I wish I had the original German for this particular moment. All right, Faust comes close to losing the bargain. Yeah. He comes close to losing the bet because when he sits down with Helen, he, I mean, these are Luke's words. Uh, and it's not even just Luke's words. Luke notes that several critics have tried to locate this as a moment where Faust does lose. But he says, breathless, I seem words tremble and lose power. This is a dream in no place at no hour. Um, that seems to be a kind of articulation of the end of time and the end of space that Faust said would end up being the, the sort of the, the concluding term for the bet. Yeah. Right? Once he reaches that transcendental state, then the bet's off. But we were sort of talking about that before the, the paradox of that is that the, if he reaches that transcendental state, then there's no possible way for Mephistopheles to get him anyway. Yeah, But this is where he comes closest to almost kind of sort of saying that this is it. Yeah, yeah. And then Mephistopheles interrupts in the guise of Forkius to say that Menelaus is here. Okay. <laughs> so here's – this is where I wish I had the original German. Um <clears throat> One way that I was thinking about interpreting this was that Faust is coming close to concluding that he seems to be on the cusp of giving it up. Mephistopheles is about to win. But instead of taking the victory, it seems to be in Mephistopheles' nature just to keep prodding. Like he can't stop from provoking. Yeah. If that makes any sense. So he's got to be the one who brings Menelaus or, or he's got to be, be the one who brings the news of Menelaus to get Faust up to make this weird declaration with all the other um, sort of princes of all the German nationalities or the, the uh, Germanic groups or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if Mephistopheles really – was feeling his stake in this, wouldn't he just stop and let Faust really kind of continue to keep going and hang himself with enough rope? But Mephistopheles just can't help himself. Yeah. But to keep prodding, 
it, it's just this weird moment. I'm wondering, am I misreading this or is that sort of how it's working? Um, I, I, I'd be curious to know uh, what any of our, our listeners who know the German. Um, yeah. If there's some, sort of some nuance that. that we, that we missed there, but yeah, you're right. It does seem like he's uh, well, you know, I mean, we've all been guilty of self-sabotage in our time. Uh, not even, not even, not even the demons of hell are safe from, from working at cross purposes with themselves. It seems like they're more prone to doing so. Yeah, yeah. But it, I mean, and Faust even recognizes this as an intrusion. He says, "Offensive interruption, insolently it intrudes. I hate such headstrong folly, even when danger speaks." So it's kind of like. Man, I was just on the verge of really bringing it all together right. into the oneness of existence. But uh, in any case, um, they they dispense with that. And Faust, uh, now that he's um, sent his fiefdoms all abroad, sits down with Helen and bam, we're in Arcadia. Yep. It's just a whole the scene just dissolves instantly, and here we are some some span of time later, very unclear. Um, but uh, yeah, so we're in we're in Arcadia in a, in a in a in a beautiful sacred grove here, or maybe not sacred, but it's you know it's an enclosed arbor, as it says in the in the stage notes. Because remember, this is a stage play. Um, yeah, but I, I always imagine, you know, there was a, uh, sorry, this is our dumb reference night, but there uh-huh. was a mystery science theater 3000. Uh, it was a line that I think they used in a couple of things, but whenever there was smoke and steam, they'd be down at the bottom going dry ice and lots of it. <laughs> uh, that's what I always sort of imagine, man. Um, if you wanted to get these stage directions, right, really perform it right. You'd need lots of dry ice, lots, lots of dry ice and a, and a full orchestra. Um, yeah. Or, or at least, uh, as a, well, what was the stage direction here? Yeah. A pleasing, purely melodic music of stringed instruments. Uh, from this point to the pause after line 9,938, there's full musical accompaniment. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so he goes opera, you know? Yeah. He goes, he goes opera there. But anyway, we're, we're in this, um, this lovely glade, this, you know, Arcadian glen, this idyllic, uh, setting, which uh, reminds me a bit of Faust in the cave. You know, that was described as being yes. this idyllic. Uh, there's a lot of callbacks in this scene because we have, we have, it reminds me of Faust in the cave and Faust and Helen have yeah. a, they ha- now have a child, this miraculous boy child, Euphorion. Uh, yeah. Which I think anyone can make the etymological connection there between Euphorion and Euphoria. Um, yeah. So it's this. And he's also, he's also intended to be the spirit of poetry from the first act. Yeah. Yeah, like the when when Faust was dressed as the miser, and they had the whole pageant spectacle and everything like that, and um, the joyful boy who is the spirit of poetry sort of flies around, yeah, and, and so on and so forth. So here we have this joyful boy Euphorion. So Faust has had another child by a woman procured for him by Mephistopheles. There's another yeah, there's another go. callback. And it's magic and flies around, or not really flies around, but it it leaps in these great bounds. It's clearly the supernatural yeah. figure, much like the jar of ejaculate that was the homunculus yeah. in the uh, the classical Valpurgis knocked. Um, yeah. So this really, like, I was immediately I was reading all this and I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is clearly 
this is clearly tying up some threads here and I, and I couldn't tell you exactly what it means, but you know, we might be able to work that out tonight, but, um, the scene is set They're They're just love. They're, they're glorious bouncing, literal bouncing baby boy who was leaping from, you know, from treetop to, uh, to ruined pillar to tree. And, and, um, but Faust makes mention that like, and, but don't dare try to fly. Remember, you have to touch the earth, like, uh, and he makes reference to Antaeus, the, uh, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the earth giant who, uh, Hercules, you know, is totally invincible. Um, no, no challenger could beat him until Hercules came around and discovered that as long as Antaeus had his feet planted on the earth, who was his mother, that he could not be defeated. So, of course, Hercules, in all of his meathead cleverness, just lifts him up over his head. And, you know, that's the end of that guy. Um, <laughs> But, uh, so here we have Euphorion leaping and leaping, leaping, having a great time. Everyone's like, oh, you beautiful boy. And what does he go and do? He pulls an Icarus. He, he yeah. leaves and he tries well, to fly. He chases, he chases the wildest girl in the bunch. Yes. <clears throat> she turns into a sun and explodes off stage. <laughs> and but thank uh, God for that, that that gets to happen up. off stage. I'm sure the, uh, the production manager was glad they didn't have to stage that also. And so he leaps into that and explodes and falls and dies. Yep. All off stage. But um, this is our ejaculatory ending. Yes. Um, yes. Our, <laughs> orgasmic ejaculatory ending. Which is also the death of uh, a child born by the union of Faust and uh, and uh, a woman procured for him. The perfection of womanly beauty. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, so it's, it's a recycling of all this stuff and it's supposed to be the merger of antiquity with the sort of, you know, best of modernity. Um, the, you know, the difference between the, the, the cave and this, not trying to be gross, but Faust isn't masturbating here. He's actually having sex with the ideal, I suppose. Yeah. And the, the production, you know, at least gets to jump around a little bit. Um, not much goes on, but all right. It's, it's weird. All right. First of all, not only is Euphoria in the spirit of poetry, but he's, he's Byron. Um, after, you know, when Goethe heard, I believe this was already being sketched out, but when Goethe heard that Byron had died, um, he shifted this and made it a little bit more explicitly about Byron. And so the lament at the end is intended to be a lament for Byron. Yeah. And I guess now I have to go into a tangent on Byron. Um, all right. Byron, I, I think, is... Uh, sort of ironically scorned in in most academic circles these days um i i kind of like his his work uh it's not it's a little bit uneven mm-hmm. but really the the grand masterpiece was don juan and i know it's don juan <laughs> he pronounced it juan uh, he knew right. spanish yeah he he he, he spoke Spanish, he he read Spanish, but still his Anglicisms are there and he rhymes it Jewin. Uh he rhymes it with things like new one. Right, so, right. So it's um, clear from the text of how it. he's saying it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we talked about this a little bit before <clears throat> when we were doing um 
Paradise Lost. Yeah, yeah. The whole gist of Don Juan is that it's um, sort of this uh, if we can free ourselves from our sexual hangups, we can free ourselves from other sort of sorts of systems of authoritarian structure. Um, as the work goes on, it doesn't play out that way and it becomes a little bit more stoic. Yeah. Um, but anyway, Byron was this, it's hard to get a handle on how huge he was in the 19th century, Mm. like, or in the late 18th, early 19th century. Um, and how much of a shadow he cast over the rest of the 19th century, not, just in writing in English, but he was kind of an international phenomenon. Um, Byron and, and here's, okay, it's, it's October and we can get spooky and creepy with it and kind of creepy and fun with it. And so Byron's kind of the perfect goth kid to play with that. Um, he, he wasn't supposed to be a lord. He was born um, with a physical deformity. One of his feet, I, I guess at the time they called it a clubfoot. Yeah. But um, he he always had sort of a lifelong limp. And um, his father only did one good thing for him in his life, which was die while he was young. <laughs> uh, his father was a horrible, abusive, you know, alcoholic. And... Um, he he was left with his mother and they were related down the way like distant relatives were aristocrats and um his his upbringing was really pretty traumatic not only was his father dead they weren't exactly destitute but they they were sort of struggling for money he had a nanny who apparently sexually abused him huh. and what happened was this Okay. He had some distant great uncle who was fighting with his own son. And so in a fit of pique had sort of written him out of the will. And then the uncle died and before he got a chance to fix the will. Uh-huh. <laughs> and the title and the money and the trust and the 200-year-old seller all went to Byron. Yes. The the black sheep of the family nearly disowned Guy's son. Um, so from that moment forward, it was like they'd won the lottery and Byron got this classical edu- – like this, this classic education. You know, He was sent to these fantastic boarding schools and he wanted to be a poet. And, you know, that was sort of his, his life's dream. And he published some sort of sophomore uh, verse when he was in college and it got panned. So as soon as he saw the, the panning, he wrote this poem, um, uh, about how dull and dumb the, the, you know, Scottish critics were. Yeah. And, uh, it it really sort of let him loose. Like he he became known and he became famous for his do- dark, gloomy, gothic verse. But where he really excelled was in an 18th century mode of satire. Mm-hmm. Like the the more he was publicly pissed off, the better he could write. <laughs> and so, I mean, he he wrote some just wonderful scathing satire. But he um he ended up 
uh, when he graduated college, he um, he inherited the house essentially. And so if you were a newly minted millionaire with a title to your name and you inherited this, um, uh, you know, old manor house, uh, what would you do besides drink all the wine in the 200-year-old cellar and have a one to two year long orgy. Yes. <laughs> That's what he did. Uh, and yes. he nearly bankrupted himself. But um, there, there was one good thing that came from all this <clears throat> was uh, this is a great story and it's around Halloween time and I can't not tell it. Um, <laughs> a gardener found a skull in the yard. Um, the, the Byron's house, his manor house, his mansion had been part of the old monastery lands hmm, yeah. that, you know, like way back in the day, uh, Henry VIII gave it to, you know, all his buddies and, yeah, like yeah. That and kicked all the monks and nuns off. So um, it had been an old monastery and they figure this was an old monk skull. So you're kicking around on your property and you find an old monk skull. What do you do with it? Well... Byron had it taken to town, glossed over, and turned into a drinking cup. Oh man! Uh, okay. Oh boy, that's a that's a and, you know. Uh, typically, I only reserve that treatment for the skulls of my enemies I've slain in battle, like uh, like how uh, the Bulgarian Khan Krum did to the Byzantine Emperor. I believe that was Nicephorus that he did that to. <laughs> but yeah, uh, other other armchair Byzantinists don't correct me. I'm sure I got all that wrong, but. Um, <laughs> But wow, yeah, I, I would not have thought to do that on a lark. Okay, so uh, he did. Uh, just sent it to town, had it glossed up a little bit, and then kept it as a drinking cup. And um, nobody would have known anything about it except he wrote a poem about it and made sure to have it published. <laughs> so, but the the point that I'm trying to make is that Byron was a guy who who cultivated that, right? Yes, he, yes. He was you know one of those original bad boys who cultivated that image. Um, he... Most likely, I mean, you can't even call him bisexual. Let's just say pansexual. Sure. Um, he apparently had uh, relationships with some of uh, the boys in the boarding school and with male friends in college, um, if I remember correctly. And then he he goes to London because he does have an official position. He, you know, and this this I think is something that Goethe maybe could forgive him some of his trespasses for um he was an aristocrat and you know how goethe feels about aristocrats he's kind of on their side yeah yeah um, but uh byron was an aristocrat and as such he he had an official place in parliament and he did use some of his clout and some of his vote to try to pass um you know laws to i guess improve conditions for the working poor um but uh, even though he married and um, sort of helped engender the woman who uh, basically co-built the first computing system, um, mm-hmm. go look that up. Yeah, uh, yeah. He uh, he couldn't keep it in his pants, and he was sleeping <laughs> around London. And um, well, Daniel, if you accidentally slept with your half sister, how would you respond when you found out that she was your half sister? Oh well, um, <laughs> would you go back for seconds? <laughs> um, personally, and I mean, and unless I was a figure in myth, 
I would not. Um, although it seems uh, like Byron, this gentleman thought of himself in those terms. Well, he tried. Yeah. Um, and uh, once that was found <laughs> out, that was uh, that was the end of his career in London. He yeah. went into self-exile on the continent. And um, I got to tell you, man, really sort of, you know, that that kind of shit doesn't fly unless you're the Macedonian king of Egypt. I mean, <laughs> unless you're a Ptolemy, people are not going to look the other way, bro. Yeah, he was good, but he wasn't that good. Anyway, <laughs> so um, he he ends up sort of gallivanting around Europe and living abroad in, in exile. And um, I mean, a, a lot of it was self-imposed exile. And a lot of it was, um, again, cultivating an image. Yes. Like yes. His, his best verse is really his funniest verse. But a lot of his verse is sort of cultivating that. I mean, it's, it's sort of like the Jim Morrison, uh, Nine Inch Nails, you know, I'm a dark creepy yeah scary tormented soul and so on and so forth and and it it took off he he became sort of like the image right like that was the the image he became that thing that was emulated and it's so much a part of um like i guess 18th and 19th or late 18th you know romantic era mm-hmm. Um, but you know, more 19th century sensibility. Yeah. Like, yeah. Really, I, I, I guess I always say 18th when I think about the romantics because I'm also thinking about Wordsworth and Coleridge, but no, Byron was later than Wordsworth and Coleridge. And so he sort of comes after that, but it, it really is so much a part of not just English writing, but European writing and European culture, the, 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 the crafting of this dark, gloomy, tormented soul. Right. Um, and Byron, He'd even ripped off Faust. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's October, and if you're in the mood, um, go check out his closet drama, Manfred, which is all about this guy who did something unspeakable with his sister, who um, <laughs> is also a, a magic wizard uh, who has all these sort of powers, and he's wrestling with his guilt and sin and all this other stuff like that. But it it rips off so much of Faust, and it it sort of takes from that and and make like it turns it into recognizable tropes, right? Um, except where Faust is really sort of wrestling with a much more um, recognize like Faust Part One is wrestling with a much more recognizable um, sort of you know, human activity, Manfred is just one dude spouting off. Yeah. But you know, when he was accused of plagiarism, Byron could say, dude, I don't even read German. (laughs) Yeah. But he was hanging out with Percy Shelley who did and who had translated parts of Faust. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's this whole weird thing. In any case, um, to sort of bring it to a close, uh, a lot of, Byron's friends were sort of dying off. Shelley died. Um, so many of his companions were sort of dying young. And he, he got to the stage late in his life. I mean, he, he, I can't remember how old he was. He wasn't old, mm-hmm. but he got to the stage sort of late in his life where he was like, fuck it. <laughs> um, it was just, uh, I, I might as well go out as best I can. And so he went to Greece. Yes. Um, yes. And got sort of like a, a band of mercenaries together and was sort of training them. And, um, he, he was gonna, um, I mean, the idea was to fight for Greek independence against the, the Turkish. 
and he he ended up dying in in Greece. Um, he never saw a single fight. Uh, he got bit by a mosquito and got um, it was either <laughs> yellow fever or malaria. Yeah, yeah. But um, but he uh, you know, I, 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 if I remember from many many moons ago in my first romantic lit class. I believe his doctor, like there was this close personal friend, like personal surgeon or personal doctor who was with him, who was involved in the fighting and got shot several times and went and hid out in a cave for a couple of days until everything was over. Um, and he crawled out and managed to survive the whole thing. Byron um, got a fever and uh, they were bleeding him. Yeah. And that apparently is is what sort of hastened his demise. So the I remember my my professor telling us so let that be a lesson to you, you know if if you ever go to war make sure that you get shot seven times <laughs> and that your doctor doesn't bleed you. <laughs> I, I was like, yeah I I, I was thank you. I would say though that um dying of malaria uh is by if you go if you go by um the actual statistical causes of death that is absolutely a soldier's death uh. Yeah, yeah okay. at, at that time, like that was how you were gonna yeah. die if you were in the armed forces. <laughs> so yeah, so I think he still counts. <clears throat> well, anyway, the the point that I'm trying to make is that um, there are a couple of things, or there are a couple of reasons why Goethe would want to use Byron here, or want to use yeah. Byron as the emblem of Euphoria. One is just the sort of cultural reach he had across Europe at the time. He was a bestseller. Um, he was sort of this wide, widely known uh, versifier. And Byron could do a lot in verse. I mean, go read Don Juan. Yeah. Um, it's absolutely amazing. The, the whole thing is so tightly constructed. And it's in these stanzas that are some of the most difficult to write in English because every other line rhymes. <laughs> it's, it's interconnected rhymes. And the, 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 the astounding thing, the really shocking thing about Don Juan is how casual and tossed off it feels. Yeah. I mean, it feels like the most relaxed, you know, what have you. Uh, my favorite line in the whole thing is after Juan and Julia have slept together um, <clears throat> for the first time. Uh, in epics, you always have to have uh, an invocation of the muse. Well, he starts off the next canto, hail muse, etc. We left you in sleeping. And so it's like <laughs> just brush over all of that. But um, he he had this this tremendous stance. Um, he could do a lot with verse. Um, he he had this interest in antiquity. And the classics, uh, he sort of shared that with Shelley. I, I believe both of them knew their their uh, ancient Greek. I, I know Shelley did. I, I'm fairly certain Byron did. But um, he he also died in the cause of Greek independence. Yeah, which you know is another reason why why Goethe sees him as appropriate to incorporate into this section about trying to re- revive classicism. Yeah. Um, now, <clears throat> uh, I think you're right that the reference you, – you've got the reference absolutely right to um, – you know, and thank you for that backstory to keeping your feet on the ground. Right? Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the giant that Hercules killed. And there's also a sort of symbolic resonance that, that Luke sees uh, where – what 
what Goethe through Faust seems to be saying is stay grounded in the material substance, right? This is a kind of aesthetics that he's espousing. Um, stay grounded in the day and the age or grounded in your experience if you try to expand beyond that into this abstraction or this, you know, sort of totalizing vision, um, then you'll end up sort of lost in the vision and you'll lose, um, your feet will come off the ground. I know Goethe wasn't a romantic, but that's a kind of critique that's woven into a lot of British romanticism. And I'm thinking here of something like uh, Percy Shelley's Alastor. Yeah. Have you ever read that one? No, no, I have not. It's it's this weird um, sort of mythical piece where this uh, sort of poet figure is searching after this sort of imaginative muse type figure, this empowering thing, and and it does seem to be you know Shelley seems to be in that that Gertian mode where desire is a part of the the um, the creative project anyway and. When he finds the muse figure, it becomes this sort of weird solipsistic moment. Like it's so completely lost in the totalizing vision that you're completely cut off from social life and any kind of engagement with anyone around you. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think there's a tradition of reading Shelley's poem sort of straightforwardly. But when you consider, you know, Shelley the socialist who's trying to foment revolution for equality, um, the poem is a satire and it's a satire on that totalizing vision. Hmm. Um, It it seems as if Goethe is also sort of warning against the totalizing vision or the totalizing visionary moment as as dangerous. He's sort of in anti-romantic mode. Yeah. Uh, so what does Euphorian Byron, the arch poet, do? Um, follows his own path to that transcendental vision, and then is annihilated in it. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, that's orgasm for you, I suppose. That's right, and we 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 round up <laughs> Act Three on another uh, on another nut being busted. Oh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but. But it doesn't stop there. That's sort of like the yeah the, yeah. There's there's a sort of denouement where the chorus and this is what I found kind of fascinating. The chorus um, undergoes a, a transformation that that is reminiscent of Ovid's Metamorphoses. So it seems like this is going to shift us out of the Volpergisnacht, the classical Volpergisnacht, classical fantasy, and back into, um, I guess, the realities of princely life that we left way back in Act 1. Yeah. Um, Act 4 brings us back to Faust and the Emperor. Aha, yes. And... It's like this whole thing has just been one stage of the journey. So it's you know what what I found kind of interesting is that the all the 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 members of the chorus become plants and animals. 
So yes. that's what I mean by it's reminiscent of Ovid's Metamorphoses. They they sort of transform into the scenery. And it seems to be suggesting that the classical is always there. It's kind of like the given history that becomes the 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 sort of scene for where you are. Yeah. Right? And it's always accessible due to that. Mm-hmm. But the culmination can't be what it was, right? It's sort of like the given of the history, but the present moment will keep going forward. And that's why I keep thinking about this as as having to say something about the failure of classicism and perhaps about the failures or the limitations of Weimar classicism. Yes. What yeah. Goethe himself had, you know, engaged with. Um if it was the culmination, well then why do we have Act Four? Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. And I'm not being I'm not being glib. It's sort of like, you know, if this is the apocalyptic moment, then why do we still have two more acts to go? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's it's uh, it's like you said. Like I I've not read ahead, so I don't know. But we'll uh, we'll see <laughs> how how Goethe wraps this up. I I would anticipate. Well, here we go. We can we can put some money down. I'm gonna. <laughs> Uh-huh. I'm gonna I'm gonna make a bet on where Faust Part Two goes. Which, if reading it has taught me anything, I'm a sucker to make the bet that I would know <laughs> You're anything get this wrong. about where this is gonna go. But I do. So we're gonna head back to more firmer ground. We're gonna get back into kind of the the Holy Roman Empire sort of you know fa- a fable version of the Holy Roman Empire that we were in before with the Emperor mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and. Thinking on the themes of classicism and its failures or its limitations, we may see an attempt at classicism by other characters than Faust. We might see an attempt by the emperor and he will be made foolish for doing so. Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if like the classicism element gets dropped entirely. That would seem weird to me because we have spent a lot of time with it so far in part two. But also, you know, I don't know. Maybe the babe, maybe the child exploding really was the end of that. But I, I, I feel like there's, you know, this has been about Faust's striving. Yeah. And he's clearly like a, a placeholder character for the intellectual life of, you know, late 18th and early 19th century Germany. Yeah. And yeah. so clearly classicism was not done with Germany. Uh, you know, during the time Goethe was writing. So I, I, I imagine uh-huh. that, you know, I, I feel like some other kind of symbolic character, like say an emperor of, of, of the Germans might have yeah. some dabbling to make in this. Uh, I, I'm very curious to see where it goes though. No, you're all wrong. They say, fuck it. And let's ah! <laughs> <laughs> well, that terror is just, yeah, Act Four is a a, a war. The, well, you know what? I'm going to go write my own Faust Part Two, and I'm going to more fully explore these themes than Goethe ever could. For exactly. here, from my here, from my um, standpoint as a as a you know barely German German literate person. <laughs> but I, I I think you're right if I remember correctly that you're never done with a theme. Yeah. In in Faust, and so a lot of this does get recycled in some way, shape, or form, and every act has to end with ejaculation. So that's right. We'll get there when we get there. <laughs> but um, no. So 
you know, I, I guess that sort of concludes our, our thinking through of, of, uh, act three of Faust part two. There are some things that are still left hanging. Um, I'm still sort of in the background, like on the back burner, I've got simmering some kind of idea that this is sort of his posthumous, aha, I'm still here kind of thing. Because it does seem so autobiographical, but I'm still not quite certain how to thread that needle or, or what significance it might play. But that's something I want to keep an eye on. I, I, I think you're right that the classicism, that's probably something that we should keep an eye on too. How does it manifest if it does manifest? I know that Act 4 really is the war and then Act 5 is uh, basically Faust as real estate agent. <laughs> but um, it's, you know, how do these notions of <clears throat> merging the best of ages, how do they come together if they come together? Um, I can't remember, I can't recall that they do. It, it just seems to be a phase, which would say one thing about, you know, where that sort of stands, but we'll, we'll get there when we get there. And, and I, I just want to see how this stuff recycles. I also want to keep an eye on spectacle. Uh, so much of this has had to do with performance and spectacle and just sort of, you know, the illusory nature of the performance itself. So I want to see if that gets picked up as well, you know? Yeah. But we'll, we'll, we'll get there when we get there. (laughs) That's right. Thank you for a lovely, creepy, uh, act three in this cold, dank October evening. (laughs) And, uh, uh, while we're we're on that, uh, I said it before in the bumper, but um, if you want to hear us talk about the the ghost stories of Ambrose Bierce, yes, we did a segment for the Agoraphobia podcast put out by the Agora Network, and uh, that that was a whole lot of fun to sort of jump away from Goethe for a second. And I've also got a brief meditation on monsters and the Baroque uh, that is by the time this drops that already will have dropped. Yeah. So uh, we'll have links to all that in the show notes and um, you know, please, please go check that stuff out because we put just as much work into that as we do into this. And it was also a lot of fun to look at some of the uh, old West American ghost. <laughs> it, w- it was. And, uh, and uh, as, as I've told people uh, you'll have to listen to find out why Claude says that Ambrose Bierce uh, is to Edgar Allan Poe as the cramps are to the cure. Uh, yeah. <laughs> which is probably my favorite simile, uh, or, or analogy I've heard in a long time. <laughs> but it's so apt. It is. It is. All right. So anyway, uh, if you want to know more about that, go listen. Uh, you can find us online on Facebook, on Twitter, um, follow us and, uh, enjoy what we do if you enjoy what we do uh go to itunes or apple Podcasts or wherever you get this and leave a nice uh review and if you don't like what we do i don't know don't listen (laughs) it's it's that easy we don't make you listen so you don't have to uh in any case uh take care uh have a good spooky season and we'll be back with act four coming up shortly 